please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. But do you see, for the note, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find no more. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of God. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Gracious Father, it is you uh, that we want to hear from this morning. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who speaks and that you have given us your word. You have revealed yourself through the scriptures. You've given us your spirit to have ears to hear it. And so, Lord, would your spirit do just that this morning? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see you, hearts that are ready to be changed by the truth of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask any adult where they were on the morning of September 11, 2001, they'll be able to tell you right away. I was sitting in a dentist chair getting a cavity filled. And we remember where we were that morning uh, because on that day our nation was glued to the television watching the largest terrorist attack on American soil unfold as two hijacked airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center and another one into the Pentagon. On that day, over 2,900 people lost their lives. 
It was shocking and utterly tragic, such that none of us will ever forget where we were uh, when that happened. But do you remember where you were, were where you were on January tenth, two thousand fifteen, when another twenty nine hundred people were killed on American soil, or March fifteenth, or April twelfth? July 7th, do you remember where you were yesterday when another 2,900 people were killed right here in our country? 53 in the state of Massachusetts for an average of over 1 million a year in the United States. Lives taken through what we are talking about this morning, uh, this brutal act called abortion. And more importantly than remembering where we are is what do we do about it? What do we do with such a huge topic that feels so hopeless, uh, that's so emotionally charged that we're afraid to bring it up in conversation with people? Um, What do we do? How do we respond personally to it? How do we respond as mothers and fathers, as brothers and sisters, as citizens, as Christians, as a church? Do we shrug our shoulders in indifference, kind of carry on? Uh, Do we throw our arms up in defeat? Nothing's going to change anyway. Do we respond in outrage and protest, take to social media or to the streets? Do we get involved through political channels or pregnancy centers, giving where we can, helping where we can? Of course, there's a whole range of responses, and most of them have their time and place, save indifference or defeat. But our question this morning is specific. How does the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ, how does that speak to the abortion crisis? How does the good news of what Jesus has done to establish his kingdom to deal with our sin, guide us and equip us in how to feel and think and act in light of this tragedy. The gospel tells us that sin really is sinful because God really is holy. And yet it also tells us that grace really is sufficient because Christ's blood really was enough enough to deal with our sin. And and so that bids us to be honest about the brokenness, the sin that we see and participate in and live with in this world, how ugly it is, how terrible and sorrowful. And yet it bids us to be at the very same time hopeful that God will do something about it and in fact has already done something about it cross. So if our goal this morning to, to kind of take this question and let the good news of Christ shape our reaction to it, how we feel, how we think, how we act, then I think the place to begin with this subject is lament. Lament. And that's what brings us to Psalm 10. The Psalms are filled with what we call laments, cries of 
anguish and despair, sorrow and grief, honest expressions of frustration and complaint, looking to God for help from the midst of a severe trial. That's what Psalm 10 is doing when it begins with the cry, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? There are over 70 psalms that can be identified as laments. Dominated by feelings of grief, loneliness, perplexity, anger, frustration, abandonment, despair. And it's kind of like, what are those doing in the Bible? I thought we were supposed to be happy all the time. Psalms give us a voice for life in a broken world. We need a language of lament. It shows us that it's okay to be honest about how messed up this world is and how frustrated and how weak and helpless we feel within it. While at the same time, directing us to the one who can actually do something about it. See, a lament is a prayer. It's, it's not just, you know, vent, a venting session, you know. The, there's no doubt a, a certain element of release involved, but it's not just a venting session, and it's not just kind of a grumbling, complaining session like you see with Israel in the wilderness. The difference between the kind of grumbling Israel did in the wilderness and a lament is that a a lament rises not out of a disbelief in God, but a belief that he is God, and therefore this is wrong, and he's the one who can do something about it and should. It's a prayer. It's directed to the God who has the character and ability to deal justly with the problems that we see and who is, in fact, able to redeem our suffering and use it for his purposes. So we begin with lament. Now, of course, Psalm 10 is not exclusively about the subject of abortion. It's about injustice, generally speaking. But it speaks to abortion with a vivid and unsettling precision. And when we weigh this crisis in our nation, in our churches, in our, you know, around the globe, I, I think that this is the place to start with sorrow and grief and sadness and frustration that something like this can even be happening. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This is not right. There are 44 million abortions worldwide every single year. Nearly 58 million since Roe versus Wade in 1973. 21% of pregnancies in the U.S. are terminated. We've killed 20% of our population since And among ethnic minorities who are often targeted by abortion providers, the percentage is much higher. In New York City, the abortion rate among African Americans is close to 60%. 41% for Hispanic. How long? How long, O Lord, will you forget these children forever? When will you hide your face? Our first response must be sorrow on behalf of the unborn. 
to add our voices to Rachel's lament, which Matthew picks up in chapter 2 as Herod is trying to slaughter all of these innocent children in effort to snuff out Christ. A voice was raised in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Yet, when we look at verse 1, stop and think about it, we realize that, that these words express not only our sorrow as we kind of look at the abortion crisis as a whole, but for some of us, they express the very cry of sorrow we experience from the midst of a crisis pregnancy. The feeling of being alone and scared and not knowing what to do, feeling trapped in our situation. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The Guttmacher Institute, which is a research affiliate of Planned Parenthood, is categorized, recorded and categorized the various reasons that are given uh, for why people get an abortion. These statistics are just a couple years old. Uh, 25% say that it's because they're not ready for a child or another child. The timing is wrong. 23% can't afford a baby right now. 19% are done with their childbearing or child-rearing years. 8% don't want to be a single mother or having relationship problems. 7% feel too young or immature. And, And you can read through that list and say that the common thread among those reasons is selfishness. And technically speaking, you would be right to conclude that, if we're being honest. But there's another thread that weaves through them that weighs much more heavily in the moment, and that's fear. Fear. What will my family say? What will people think? How can I raise a child? Especially with someone I don't want to be with. What if my baby has a disability? What will happen to my education? What about my career? How can I afford this? What are people at church going to say? Here. I spent some time talking with Sarah Loy this week. Sarah is the executive director of BCPC. And as she was sharing from her experience in, in both personally and working with hundreds of women, most people in crisis aren't asking themselves the question, is this a child or not? Most of them are saying, I can't have a child yet, not realizing that they already have one. As John Enzer describes it, a woman in an unplanned pregnancy is truly frightened and feels that her life is ending. Not physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Her life, as she has projected it, appears to be threatened by the baby. And so abortion in her mind is a desperate act to save her own life. This may not be true, but it feels true. The situation dominated by fear. And it's often followed at some point with shame and regret. Shame that that women, even in churches like this, can carry silently for decades. 
What would people say if they knew? Would they find out? Would they judge me? Sorrow of abortion runs deep on both sides. And we need to understand that. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In the common experience in both postures of that lament is this pressing sense of God's distance. Where is God in this? For those who are, are horrified by the abortion crisis, this sense of God's distance is a matter of frustration and sorrow. For those who are caught in the middle of a crisis, this sense of God's distance is a matter of confusion and fear. And yet there are other players involved in this crisis who perpetuate it and profit from it for whom this sense of God's distance is something to be exploited and taken advantage of. And that's what we see in verses 2 through 11 which I believe reveals to us the root of abortion. What is it that makes abortion possible for those to receive it, but more so for those who advocate for it and fund it and provide it, perform it? What makes it possible is a renouncing and suppressing of God. A renouncing and suppressing of God. Putting Him out of the picture so that we can do what we want to do. What we see in verses 2 through 4. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is the root of the abortion industry. The only way that you can advocate for and participate in the termination of the most vulnerable members of the human race is if you ignore or reject God. That's it. There's no other path to get there. Once God's out of the picture, we don't have to answer to anyone but ourselves. We can assign value to life according to our own desires or for the sake of our own goals. And we can carry on doing it for years, assuring ourselves who is there to stop us? Who will be there to judge in the end? There's no God. That's the kind of brazen self-confidence you see in verses 5 through 6. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. I have nothing to worry about. And to make sure that we don't meet adversity, that no one gets in our way, we unleash an arsenal of deception in our speech. Verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity this is the central tactic of the abortion industry that enables it to do what it does deception deception we don't call it a baby we call it a product of conception or a clump of cells 
That is intentionally deceptive speech to get you to do something that you should not do. Or we tell you that abortion is a women's health issue. We leave out the fact that there's more than one life involved in the issue and that 50% of those lives happen to be women, statistically speaking. What about their health? It's deception. That's the central tactic. Now, obviously, that's a pretty bold charge to make, that politicians and doctors and executives are willfully tampering with the truth. That's a bold statement. It's possible that some of them may be self-deceived, that they may really believe the lie that they've been touting. It's possible. But willful deception is also a documented, demonstrable fact. The lie that a fetus isn't yet a person. When every single medical textbook out there clearly states human life begins at conception, you cannot find a medical textbook that says otherwise. Run that line. The lie perpetuated until recently that without Planned Parenthood, women would lose access to mammograms. For years, that's been the line. They've never once in their history offered a mammogram. It's a lie. The lie that only 3% of their business is abortion, when in fact they receive at least a third of their clinical income and more than 10% of all revenue, including government funding, from abortion procedures. The lie that clinics aren't working working to, to seek a profit off donated fetal tissue when there is now video evidence showing uh, executives haggling over the price. The lie that the videos exposing that illegal activity were, quote, highly edited or deceptively edited and therefore should be ignored when in fact they've been authenticated by the top third-party forensics group, the kind of group you call on when you're a Fortune 500 company and you need somebody to testify in court. I don't know what other word to call that than deception. That's the central tactic. And it's persuasive. 70% of New Englanders believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 70%. Why? But the most troubling part is that this deception is employed for the explicit goal of taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Listen to verses 8 through 10 with the abortion industry in mind. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. His might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. have mercy. Mercy, in fact, will be their only hope. Our only hope. Because God does see. He will act. 
And that's what we see in verses 12 to 18, the Lord's response to this kind of injustice. In verse 12, the psalmist transitions from describing the wicked to now taking up the plea of the helpless. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. God will act on behalf of the unborn. He hears their silent cries. He will bring justice. He will bring justice. That is a sobering reality. And one that our nation has suppressed for far too long. The culture, we have convinced ourselves the logic of verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? We don't believe that there will be a reckoning in the end. We don't believe that anymore. We don't believe that God actually judges sin. And the church is not immune from this. Chris shared the statistics earlier. 43% of women obtaining an abortion identify themselves as Protestant. 27% is Catholic. We don't believe what our own scriptures tell us about God and his vision for life. We don't really believe that God will judge sin because we don't really believe that sin's that big a deal. And we don't believe that it's a big deal because we don't really believe that God is that holy. We have a low view of God. Press him, renounce him, put him out of the picture so that we can do what we want. We don't believe that his majesty is unparalleled and his perfection is unattainable and his purity is untouchable. We don't believe our God is holy. But holy and just he is. Verses 16 to 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. God will act. He is holy. And so what hope is there in the face of a crisis like this? What do we do? What hope, for there, what hope is there for women in the midst of that crisis? Dominated by fear, feeling alone, cornered in, not sure what to do. What hope is there for them? What hope is there for a blind and brutal industry that makes a profit from blood guilt? What hope? What hope is there if we've already experienced an abortion and now live with this sense of shame and regret? Is there any hope for that? There's only one solution. For healing and hope in the face of abortion, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Enzer writes that abortion 
and the blood guilt it invokes must be dealt with. It needs to be called out by name, confessed by name, and brought under a gospel that declares that there is no forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood except by the shedding of innocent blood. That is the blood of Christ. Understand that the king who will judge sin in the end, the king who reigns forever and ever, is the one who established his reign on earth by taking our place on the cross. That's the kind of king he is. He does see, he does note the vexation, the mischief, so that he takes it into his hands. He steps into the problem and makes it his problem. Jesus didn't come to earth as a distant observer, like a you know, supervisor making his rounds on the different job sites to kind of check on your progress but not lift a hammer to help or anything. Jesus came to step into our human experience and to take that experience on himself, to stand in our place, to taste for himself the full range of human brokenness and to take on to himself the full weight of human sin that he might reconcile us to his Father, that he might bring healing, wholeness, forgiveness, newness of life. Know that the fear you feel when your life seems like it's falling apart, know that Jesus knows that fear. When he prayed in the garden, his soul was burdened and sorrowful to the point of death knowing what was about to take place, that the cup, cup of God's wrath, the full weight of his holy anger against all human sin, the very weight of hell itself, that he was about to drain that cup to the dregs. He knows what it's like to be crippled in fear over the consequences, not just of your actions, but as he takes on the consequences of our actions. He actually, literally, on the cross, made your fear his fear. He knows what it's like. The tears that you shed in shame and loneliness. Jesus has tasted that bitter salt. He knows His heart breaks with you. He weeps over your sin and he weeps with you in your sorrow. You are not alone. The betrayal and abandonment you feel when people reject you because you have an abortion or because you're unwilling to have one. Jesus knows that rejection. It became his rejection when he was abandoned by his closest friends even to the point of his Father in heaven turning his back on him while he bore the sin of the world. I think it's interesting and moving that one of Jesus' last words on the cross was a lament. Think about that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took Israel's lament 
and our lament, and he made it his own lament. That he might become the answer. All laments. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. His blood was poured out that our blood guilt might be cleansed. He rose from the dead and he's coming again. And when he does, his own hand will be the hand that wipes away every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Lord's response to abortion is the gospel of Jesus. That's what he's done in response. He will act on their behalf, and he has already acted on their behalf and on our behalf. through The work of his son. So how do we respond to that? More than anything else, we must continue to hold on and hold out the gospel of Jesus. If that's God's response, that ought to be the center of our response. To cling to Jesus in faith and to make his offer of mercy and grace known to everyone. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. There is hope and healing in the cross of Christ. Only the innocent blood of Christ proclaimed and believed can cleanse away the blood guilt of abortion. But are there specific uh, practical things that we can do in response uh, to the abortion crisis as this gospel fuels us and directs us? And the answer is absolutely. And I want to uh, suggest four of them to you this morning, all of which flow out of a reverence for God. The problem in this passage and the problem with rampant injustice is this denial and rejection of God. So if that's the problem, then the solution must be keeping God at the center of it all. Not marginalizing him, but fearing him and walking with him and honoring him. And so as we do that, there are four ways that we can acknowledge his holiness and honor his vision for life. First, Commit to honoring life personally. Commit to honoring life personally. Commit right now before God that whatever the circumstances or situation in your life, abortion is not an option. Make that commitment to God. Not for you, not for your spouse, not for your teenage daughter. If churchgoers stopped receiving abortions, the rate would drop by 65% next year. Decide now, as a family, that grace is going to reign in your relationship with your kids. Your children know, without a doubt, that if they came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant, or my girlfriend's pregnant, do they know, without a doubt that if they came to you and said that, that though you would be sad and disappointed, that you would love them and come alongside them. If they don't know that and aren't convinced of that, let them know that and convince them of that. That there is grace and it reigns over this house. And yes, there are consequences for sin and we don't want to see you make bad choices, but grace 
reigns. And abortion's not going to be an option on the table. We are with you and for you. Do they know? Are they convinced of your love? For the sake of these children, for the sake of your potential grandchildren, make sure they know that, that you are committed personally to honoring life. Second, we need to honor life persuasively. Honor life persuasively. Understand the issue and be able to talk about it with friends and colleagues and kids in a compelling way. You don't have to be a jerk about it. That's, I think, our fear. The minute I kind of take up my position and make it be known, I'm going to be the, you know, the uh, loudmouth jerk on the side of the street with a sign or something like that. And we don't want to be associated. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But you do need to understand the issue and be able to speak persuasively with people. One of the simplest ways uh, to do that is to remember the acronym SLED. SLED. The heart of the abortion debate is the question of whether an unborn child is human. Everything hangs on that question of whether that fetus is human or not. If it is, then we know this is wrong. If, if we can convince ourselves that it's not, we can justify our behavior. And SLED is an acronym that helps us reason persuasively with others that there is no logical reason to view the baby in the womb as less than human. Not an issue of size. It's true that embryos are smaller than newborns and adults, but why, why does that matter? Do you really want to say that large people are more human than small people? I mean, size just isn't really a legitimate factor. Neither is level of de- development. It's the L. And yes, embryos and fetuses are less developed than the adults that they'll one day become. But again, why is level of development relevant? Four-year-old girls are less developed than 14-year-old girls. Should older children have more rights than their younger siblings? consistent in our logic. The E stands for environment. Where you are has no being on who you are. Does your value change when you cross the street or roll over in bed? If not, how can a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the essential nature of the unborn from non-human to human? That's the argument. Having a law that protects the murder of the unborn in the womb is like having a law that says it's okay to kill your kids in the kitchen but not in the living room. That's the logic. And then finally, D is for degree of dependency. If viability makes us human, then all those who depend on insulin or kidney medication or any sort of dependence on someone else are less than human, and we can kill them too if we're going to be consistent in our logic. The sad part of that last one is that's exactly what many philosophers advocate. Journal of Medicine coming out of Australia a year or two ago advocates for what they call afterbirth abortion. That if we're going to apply our logic consistently and we can kill kids in the womb, we can kill them after they're born too. There's no difference. And so why don't we do that too? That's a real medical journal argument. We need to honor life persuasively. We need to understand the issues and be able to speak winsomely and compelling about them. And then third, we need to honor life practically. 
1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we need to love our neighbors in tangible ways. Are we coming alongside single moms? Do they know that there's a place for them in this church, that we love them and we want to be for them? We want to make life easier for them, whether it's daycare or diapers or just someone, a friend, just to be a friend and come alongside them. The church must be known not just for being pro-birth, but for being pro-life. And that means that Christians should be setting a pace in supporting crisis pregnancy works like Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. And it means that we should be setting the pace in adoption and foster care, too. That's something I encourage you to pray about when you go home. What could we do? Not just to make sure the baby's born, but to care for them after they're born. Is God laying something like that on our family's heart to get involved? What would happen if we became known for being a church of adopting foster care? Loving practically, honoring life practically means that we can no longer move to the other side of the road when we see someone in the ditch, pretend that it's not our problem. What Pastor Bruce talked about last week, the great cost of tangible love, that's what Christ did for us. Gives us a chance to do it for others. And so we honor life personally, we honor it persuasively and practically. Finally, we honor life politically. Yep, that's part of it. Politics will not save the world. I don't like politics personally. A pessimist for the most part when it comes to politics. And yet, as long as we have a voice, we must use it on behalf of the vulnerable and advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. If we don't speak for unborn children at risk, who's going to? Who's going to? Whether from a posture of political marginalization, like Martin Luther King Jr., whose passion for Christ drove him to stand against institutionalized racism. He had no power or clout. And yet God used him to change the world. Or from a a posture of political power and advantage, like William Wilberforce in England, who labored for 42 years in Parliament to abolish slavery. 42 years. His passion and resolve, I think, set a pace and a pattern that we should take up today with this issue. There's a quote in your worship folder, and it will be on the screen as well. Wilberforce said this, Never, never will we desist till we extinguish every trace of this bloody traffic, of which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarce believe that it has been suffered to exist so long, a disgrace and dishonor to this country. And that's, that's my prayer for us in this day, in this issue, that when I sit down with my grandkids, they'll say, did people really believe that back then, Dad? How is that even possible? Would God change hearts so much that abortion becomes a memory, a page in the history books, In this generation, he can do that. May we honor life in reverence to God 
holding on to and holding out the gospel of life. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we lift our hearts in sadness and sorrow on behalf of the unborn who suffer, on behalf of parents, mothers, fathers who feel they have no choice. This is not how your world is supposed to work. And we pray for mercy. We pray for mercy. Mercy for the unborn. Mercy for mothers and fathers in crisis situations. Mercy to open eyes to the beauty of life to the power of love, to the truth of your heavenly reign. Lord, we confess that we have failed as a nation, as people, as a church. But we confess that your grace is enough. And so, Lord, where there are among us those hurting from shame, from abortion, God, would your spirit speak peace to them? Would you remind them that that Christ's love is for them. He has proven it on the cross and that there is healing and hope. Incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more.